You are traveling through another dimension. It is a dimension as vast as space and as aged as time itself grown old. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between thought and superstition. It lies between the pit of our regret and the summit of our knowledge. It is an area we call night rule. My name is Isaac. I'm extremely pleased to be joined by Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. Philip, how are you? I'm good, Isaac. How are you? Doing well. Uh, Philip is a doctor primarily based out of New York. Specialties include neurology, psychology, and psychiatry. Is that an accurate representation of your, your bona fides, Dr. Hirschenfeld? Yeah, but I'm mostly a psychoanalyst. Yeah. It's interesting to me because uh, years ago, I was working actually at a health software company, and I got exposed to um, this article that talked about kind of recent, this is about five years ago, recent meta studies kind of comparing the long-term efficacy of, of different uh, therapeutic approaches, specifically CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy versus psychoanalysis. And, and I think the, you know, I think it's pretty well understood that CBT is, is, is quite efficacious for things like uh, addiction recovery and whatnot. Um, but what was interesting about this article was it pointed out that studies really show that individuals who see a psychoanalyst who are trying to address issues um, akin to, you know, depression or anxiety, really saw a lot more benefit over time. And that really jived with like my own personal experience and, and what I think is kind of uh, intuitive about that. I mean, do you think that it's possible? I mean, we've kind of been living in the world where behaviorism was running rampant and, you know, everyone wanted to just throw away Freud and Jung and, and all this stuff. Um, but I think people are kind of learning to circle back and, and better appreciate um, the psychoanalytic tradition more. Do you think that's a fairly accurate statement? I, I would say some people are. Um, you know, it's, it's much easier and quicker and cheaper to do something like CBT. And certainly um, insurance companies love that. Right. But if you want to address personality issues, CBT does not do that. Mm. It took a long time for personality to form, and it takes a long time to change it in any way. And it takes a lot of hard work. It's not easy. There, yeah. there, there's an old saying that psychoanalysis is for the healthy, the wealthy, and the wise. And okay. I mean, there's something to that. It's possible to get psychoanalysis, even if you're not wealthy. And it's, um, and, and these days, at least we deal with some not so healthy people 
who get a lot of benefit from it. Yeah, I think I think especially it just seems as though as a tradition that is is kind of unafraid to delve into people's kind of personal histories and experience as opposed to kind of apply almost like a formulaic attempt to create kind of metacognition out of whole cloth. Mm-hmm. It, it really makes a lot less sense to me. It's actually kind of serendipitous because my last guest uh, from the previous episode, an old friend of mine named Mo, I remember years ago, smoking a joint with him and I was like saying, oh, you know, I'm considering maybe checking out seeing a therapist. And he was like, man, you know, don't waste your time with all these behaviorists and all this CBT bullshit. Okay, you need like, you need to find like a Jewish therapist who lives in New York who can do proper psychoanalysis on you. That's what you need, man. That's what you fucking need. Don't don't settle for anything else. And it was some of the best advice actually I ever got. Although it was it was it was hard to find a psychoanalyst all those years ago, to be honest. But um, I've actually also become slightly obsessed. And this is a bit of a I hope this is not too much of an ambush, but I've become a little bit obsessed with this video I watched recently on Hegel on ambush YouTube. Away. Yeah, um, the name of this video is the the emancipation of experience, and I, I I wondered if like I know I know obviously probably not tons of psychologists are reading Hegel all the time, but I imagine there must be like some some parallels or some influence. Um, and I found it particularly interesting thinking about his writing in um, the phenomenology of spirit, talking about the emergence of consciousness and um, and kind of the development of of uh, self awareness and kind of input from the world that becomes integrated into your awareness, and then from there, you know, you you deal with with two minds kind of uh, commingling and and interacting together. But there's this one really interesting phrase that really stuck out to me where he he writes, "The false as a moment of truth." is no longer false. And to me, that seemed like such a powerful distillation of um, the value of collaboration and the value of people actually interacting and minds interacting with the world and actually learning. Because more and more, I feel as though we're kind of reverting to a reactionary worldview where it's very top down, it's very domineering, it's it's here's, here's, it's very prescriptive, it's like, here's what you have to do, and then everything will be okay. It's not like a dialectical exchange of ideas and information that mm-hmm. uh, emerges into a greater, a greater concept or a greater clarity. Um, would you say that the false as a moment of truth is no longer false, Dr. Philip Hirschenfeld? I would say I do not completely understand that statement. I'll tell you what it reminds me of, however, which is a concept in psychoanalysis called the inexact interpretation. Meaning an interpretation that you might feel that the patient is not ready to hear yet and that it may be disturbing in some way. Mm. So you water it down, you smooth out the edges, you make it palatable to that particular person, and it can be of great benefit. But the idea in this is that at some point in the treatment, if it progresses in a good way, they will be in a, in a position to hear the whole truth. So if I, if I understand what you mean by that, that yeah, phrase. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll read another passage here that might illuminate it more. I mean, I think we're definitely on the same page. Um, okay. he, uses, he uses a metaphor, I mean, a metaphor that keeps on coming up in the book, which obviously I haven't read. I've, I've only watched the YouTube video and pretending to be an expert now, like we all do. Um, <laughs> but uh, from the same from the same book, there's a passage here that I think is quite eloquently laid out. He says, um, "The bud disappears when the blossom breaks through, and one might say that the former is refuted by the latter. Likewise, through the fruit, the blossom itself may be declared to be a false existence of the plant, since the fruit emerges as the blossom's truth. 
as it comes to replace the blossom itself. These forms are not only distinguished from each other, but as incompatible with each other, they also supplant each other. However, at the same time, their fluid nature makes them into moments of an organic unity in which they are not only in conflict with each other, or not only not in conflict with each other, but rather one is equally as necessary as the other. And, and it is this equal necessity which alone constitutes the life of the whole. And it's a, it's a plant metaphor, but he's obviously also trying to talk on talk about the nature of consciousness and its emergence um, and how it's not necessarily, you know, going to be a clear linear path, you know, and there may there may be moments of that that are seemingly contradictory along that path, but ultimately they form a kind of a cohesive whole of, of development of emergence of becoming. But that's my interpretation. Uh, you know, there are lots of ways to think about consciousness and explore it and look at it. One is through philosophy, through brilliant people like Hegel. Another is through psychoanalysis. Another is through developmental neurological studies. And all of, all of these different ways are, are valid and hopefully they have something in common. But this fruit metaphor does in fact remind me very much of, of um, human development from infancy to childhood to adolescence uh, to adulthood to senescence. Mm. And they are all necessary. They are all valuable. Uh, can they be in conflict with one another? Uh, they can, but they don't have to be. For instance, I know a young woman who is very afraid of being an adult. So because her childhood, she felt very taken care of and it was very gratifying. The idea of growing up and getting into a relationship, even though she's old enough and getting married, which she says she wants to do, I don't think she really does because she's clinging on to the previous stage and is terrified of the new stage. So I think that's an instance of these various stages, in fact, being in conflict with one another. But in the best circumstance, they are not. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we probably have, I mean, I'm, I'm speculating here madly, um, but I feel as though you could argue that on a social level, there is perhaps, I mean, on a lot and mostly it probably has to do with material conditions, Part, partially it's probably also culture there's kind of a just a fear of kind of moving on to that next step I mean obviously it would be a lot different if we were living in the post-war generation and everyone could have a, a house and two cars and support a family with one salary uh, mm -hmm. people would probably be a lot more enamored with with the, the idea of kind of moving on to like you know the next stage so to speak even even if you could probably interrogate how kind of conformist it is or, or whatever um and I, I feel as though there's also like a little bit of a paralysis going on with young people in terms of existing online. And, you know, like, say, for example, if like you talk to kids these days and, and they're terrified to date because they know as soon as they do, you know, someone might post something on Facebook and they'll be horribly embarrassed. And so they kind of keep things very compartmentalized and kind of clamped down. Like it, we're, I, I almost feel as though there's like a new kind of paranoid conservatism that's arising in the next generations. 
I would agree with some of that. And those are the external reasons that are afraid that, that, that make people hesitant about moving ahead. But just as powerful are the internal reasons, because often the internal reasons use these external circumstances, such as I can't get a job. It's all too insecure out there. Well, you know, during the Great Depression, people did manage to get married, nevertheless. My parents, in fact. So, uh, you know, there's, there's something to be said for the internal and the external inhibitions in one's life. Yeah, I mean, they're both definitely a factor. I think, I think assuming that either one is kind of the definitive uh, force at play is, is definitely like a mistake. Um, and I think Hegel would agree. He seems like a pretty uh, all-encompassing guy. Um, it, it kind of reminds me also uh, around the same time I was exposed to this TED talk by, I believe she was a neuroscientist named Kelly McGonigal, hoping, hope I get that right. And she was talking about studies in kind of uh, a few different things. She did one, and again, I think these were meta studies um, and they had to do with people's ability to kind of plan for the future um, just in like very, you know, mundane everyday ways, like uh, saving for retirement, let's say. And they would, they would ask people these questions and say, you know, okay, how much do you identify with your younger self, like your five-year-old self? Would you say that that five-year-old you is the same person as you or someone that's totally different? And then you do the same thing for a version of you that's, you know, well into advanced age. Do you imagine, do you feel, do you identify with that future version of yourself or not? And quite understandably, they found that the people that, like myself, actually fit this category. Like, I, I, I don't identify with my future self at all. My future self is just like a fantasy that I've written where I'm doing all these amazing things. My life is totally different. And they found for the, that type of person, saving and planning for the future was much harder. Whereas the people that had a very, they were very grounded in their kind of identification with their future self were much more likely to be saving for the future and planning for the future. Mm -hmm. um, does that does that make sense to you just in your own experience? And is it in terms of like identification with one's future or past self, maybe something you could talk a little bit about? Um, it, it's not something I think about a lot, but it sort of reminds me of Eric Erickson, who was a very popular psychologist in the and, and psychoanalyst in the last century. And he talked about these various stages and issues like planning and being able to see yourself. And, and certainly I agree that somebody who can see the reality of their the entire expanse of their life is, is much more grounded in reality. You know, like, like the Aesop's fable of the grasshopper and the ant. The ant was busy working away all summer and the grasshopper was dancing around and fiddling. And when winter came, he froze to death and the ant did not. So there are grasshoppers in life who, who can't envision the future, who can't envision anything different from their current circumstances. And they probably, you know, it, it's, it's like that, st that study, which was very 
popular in the, in the news a couple of years ago. They took kids, I think like nursery school age kids, and they said to all of them, I'm gonna give you one M&M. And if you don't eat it for five minutes, I'm gonna give you another one. And there were some kids who just gobbled up the first M&M with no thought for the future. There were other kids where it came quite naturally. Sure, I'm just gonna sit here and twiddle my thumbs till I get my second M&M. And there was a third group that truly struggled with themselves. They really wanted to eat that M&M and they were, I forget what they were doing, but they were scrunching up their face and, 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 and forcing themselves to sit there and let that M&M sit there until they got the second one. And, and the kids who could wait and delay gratification and to earn that second M&M, they did much better in school when they finally you know, got into first, second, third grade. Because that involves planning, thinking about the future, thinking about how good you're gonna feel when you get an A on your test and can take it home and show it to your parents versus the kids who can't do that and they just wanna have fun right now. The sound went out, sound went out. Isaac. Oh, sorry, sorry, I muted myself. Oh, there you go. Um, it's fascinating. I, uh, it reminds me of another uh, study I read about in the past that sounded actually quite sadistic when you read it. It was for like a smoking cessation uh, support group. And what they would do would, what they, they'd all, they tell them to all come in. They'd sit in a big board room. Uh, they told them to all bring their, a pack of their own brand of cigarettes with them. And they'd sit them down and they'd say, okay, Everybody take their cigarette pack out and, and take the cellophane wrapper off. And then they would do that. And they'd say, okay, now we're gonna wait for a few minutes. And then they'd say, okay, now everyone uh, open the pack up and remove the tinfoil. And, and then they did that and they'd wait for a few minutes. And then they'd say, okay, now, uh, you know, take a, take a cigarette out and just hold it in your hand for a little bit and they'd wait. And then the, the funny thing is they never actually let them smoke at the end of it, <laughs> but it was just about trying to teach them to control, to kind of ride that wave mm -hmm. um, is this how I've heard it described as well. And I think it's interesting, um, like for me personally, I've always been, I've been fascinated with this, I, with trying to do more kind of metacognition on my own and understand metacognition as like a fundamental skill. Um, the same scientist uh, that I mentioned before who did the uh, Kelly McDonald, she did another study that had to do with stress and people's people's conceptualization of what stress was. And I found this also very fascinating because she basically they found that, and I know like sometimes these experiments are not reproducible, so I don't want to treat them like scripture, but they basically found that um, basically if, if people had a concept of stress as, you know, a negative thing, something that's bad and harmful to them, uh, their physiological response to stress would be worse than people who thought of stress as just a, a kind of an ordinary reaction, a normal part of life, and kind of just the body and mind's way of mm -hmm. handling a stressful, a tough situation. It was like literally on the level of like blood pressure being different, um, vascular constriction and whatnot being different. And I, it really blew me away that it's like, oh, wow, like 
if if you actually think of this experience as a bad thing, you're you could potentially just end up with like way worse outcomes. And, and it makes one wonder like what could be achieved by just investing more time and energy into giving people some of these tools. Probably that is very helpful to, to be able to see stress as normal and part of the process and um, and not get overly stressed because you're stressed. Yeah. Well, it's, I feel it's the same way with insomnia. You know, they talk about sometimes insomniacs are so frustrated and worried about the fact that they're insomniac that they just even keep themselves up longer and later. Yeah, if you're distressed by it. I, I, you know, as you get older, you have more trouble sleeping. And I certainly fit into that category. And when I wake up in the middle of the night, I am not a big meditator, but I mm. know how to meditate. Mm. And I just lay there and I say, okay, I'm awake now. Let me concentrate on my breathing and I'll fall asleep soon. And sure enough, I fall asleep after I don't even know how long. Mm. Because that method, but if I were gnashing my teeth yeah. over being awake, I, I, I don't think that would help. Mm. I mean, it's kind of paradoxical to like try and overcome that kind of problem. But it's, it's remarkable, I think, what the difference in your mood that one can find when, they, when you're able to take that step back and actually look at yourself and the realize of what you're experiencing. You know, it's, I, I'm, I'm actually, I remember the other day I was, I was lying in bed. It was a little stressed out, listening to a podcast, trying to fall asleep. And I realized after like 20 minutes that my brow was like totally furrowed. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, Jesus Christ. Okay. Let that go for yes. a little bit. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, there yeah, is I'm, research that says if you can relax certain facial muscles, mm you will be more relaxed mm. and, and and the rest of the muscles in your body the same thing there was one interesting piece of research that i read I, I, do i know this is the truth i don't know it seemed like a, a decent piece of research they took depressed people and they taught them how to smile and they made them hold that facial position multiple times a day and they got better it's really interesting i mean it's it sounds over it sounds like it would be easy to interpret like in a really simple way but i, I feel as though you know the the kind of fake it till you make it philosophy i think also just learning something new regardless of what it is requires some effort to start mm. and one you have to push through that initial difficulty um yeah it's interesting to me like i i don't want i don't i don't want to um make it sound as though like one thing that i think is also an issue that i see is kind of again this this desire to kind of mm, declare edicts to declare like a uh unmalleable rigid truth or orthodoxy you know like for example, this study about smiling, there's there's probably a lot of, there's interesting stuff to explore there, but it's not as though we should go around forcing everyone to smile, hold a smile for 20 minutes as though that's gonna solve all of our problems. Um, right. The uh, the author, the philosopher that, that did the video that I was talking about actually has written a book, which I've ordered, uh, 
and I haven't read it yet, but I actually felt as though when I was reading the abstract, it kind of reminded me of you, Philip, and I wanted to get your, your thoughts on it. it was, it's on um, uh, Taoist writer. Let me just read from the, the name of the book is Genuine Pretending, which is kind of a fascinating title. And I'll just read it here for you and get your reaction. Um, Genuine Pretending is an innovative and comprehensive new reading of the Zhangzi that highlights the critical and therapeutic functions of satire and humor. Hans-George Moeller and Paul J. D'Ambrosio show how this Taoist classic, contrary to contemporary philosophical readings, distances itself from the pursuit of authenticity and subverts the dominant Confucianism of its time through satirical allegories and ironical reflections. With humor and parody, Zheng Zi exposes the Confucian demand to commit to socially constructed norms as pretense and hypocrisy. The Confucian pursuit of sincerity establishes exemplary models that one is supposed to emulate. In contrast, the Zheng Zi parodies such venerated representations of wisdom and deconstructs the very notion of sagehood. Instead, it urges a playful, skillful, and unattached engagement with socially mandated duties and obligations. Um, do you think that we should perhaps be subverting the concept of sagehood itself and, and trying to work towards a more, um, a more a looser uh, approach to interacting with other people that involves things like humor and satire and, and self-effacing commentary? I think if it helps you, it certainly helps me. I'm way into satire and humor. Yes not and no. Not everybody is. Some people just simply don't get it. So That's true it, as well. Yeah. It would not work for them. But I do think that anything that makes you self-reflective mm. and think about what you're doing and why you're doing it can be very beneficial. And the idea of simply, you know, fake it till you make it. It, uh, it reminds me of a Talmudic principle, mm -hmm. which is, let's say you don't believe. You don't believe in God. You don't believe in the commandments. What they say is, just keep doing the commandments until they lead to a true belief. Not that I'm a religious person, I'm not, but um, there's something to that. For sure. The daily ritual of doing something that makes you think, makes you think about why you're doing it, can have profound effects. Yeah, absolutely. And it echoes, you know, even like um, some kind of more contemporary continental philosophers like uh, Althusser would say, you know, if you go to church every day, and get on your knees and pray and read the Bible and sing hymns and talk to the other parishioners. It's like that is, those practices are what kind of constitute your, your religiosity. It's not as though yeah. that's something separate from how you feel on the inside. It's actually like a part of that interior life, those, those actions themselves. Singing together, which is part of most religions, mm -hmm. is very powerful. powerful and therapeutic and communal and uh, for, unfortunately our, our culture has very little of that. I've always wanted to open up like a sing-along bar okay. where you have, a little, you have a little app, you give people the lyrics and then you're, ringing, you're singing your sea shanties. Yeah. I think people would love that. It also reminds me of how 
Brian Wilson of uh, the Beach Boys. I mean, he had this horrible, domineering, abusive father who ended up selling all the rights to his, his songs away for some ridiculously paltry sum. But as a kid, he always said that the one thing where they all felt like they could come together as a family and get close was when they would sing together, which just makes yeah. perfect sense to me. It probably does something neurological. For sure. For sure. Um, I, I'm, I feel like listening to the music for me personally is like one of like the most beneficial kind of like in terms of my neurology, one of the most beneficial things I do. Um, I was recently listening to uh, one of my favorite podcasts, the movies that made me and there was a filmmaker who talked about how he never really gets sick. But the last time he got really horribly sick, he was 16. And he had like an eye infection and a flu and he was on death's door. And he put on this movie, which I've never seen, Breaking Away, I guess it's called. And he said that. Oh, great, great movie. You got to see it. I got to see it. He, he basically said. Favorites. Okay, interesting. Great. Because he basically said that before he put the movie on, he was like, I'm going to die. It's over. I'm giving up. And then five minutes in, he started to feel better. And then by the end of the movie, he said he was miraculously just completely healed and healthy, which I found really fascinating. Like, have you ever, have you ever experienced anything like that? Would you, would you say breaking away has like a healing power for most people? Should I be checking that out right away? Well, first of all, I would say that trying to be scientific about it, maybe the illness just happened to be breaking at that particular moment that he turned on the film. Hmm. Uh, so, so that we do not know, mm. but um, I, I, it, it's a movie about not giving up. In fact, it's a movie mm. about persevering. It's a, and and fighting through great odds. And I do believe that uh, your your mental apparatus is very important in all sorts of uh, physical symptoms. A friend of mine just came down with very bad uh, vertigo. So being a psychiatrist, he started reading up on vertigo to see what causes it. And one of the main causes is anxiety. And he happens to be going through a certain uh, serious medical issue right now. So he has a lot to be anx anxious about. Yeah. And as soon as he read that, he felt better. Yeah. Yeah. It's remarkable, like when when you're experiencing anxiety. I mean, for me personally, that moment of, of awareness where you actually sit there and you're like, well, what's actually going on right now? You know? Mm -hmm. And then you realize, oh yeah, I'm, I'm looking for a job and it's really fucking horrible and stressful. Or I just went through a breakup and it was really unpleasant and stressful. But remarkably, like the, the mind seems to not want to necessarily see that somehow, at least in some instances for myself personally, and I'm sure for others, it's like- For everybody, yes. Yeah. The purpose of the symptom is to hide from yourself the root cause. Mm. And that's what therapy in part is all about. Is saying, let's look at the root cause. Mm. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm taking a vacation right now. And many, if not all of my patients over the last month before my vacation were angry, were anxious, mm. were, and didn't know why. And, you know, it was like, Shooting fish in a barrel, sort of. 
could this have anything to do with next month when I'm going to be away? Mm. Oh, yeah, I forgot all about that. That's yeah. a common response. I forgot all about your vacation. It's almost it's almost like the intensity of the emotion just kind of overwhelms whatever circuitry because I think the circuitry for emotion and cognition are really like this ultimately the same or they're kind of part of the same whole. So mm -hmm. I think I think it's maybe it's just the emotional content once it reaches a certain level just diffuses one's ability to look at things like logically and make causal causal connections. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. No. The other thing I would like get get back to is. Mm. is statement that one size does not fit all. Mm. And that's absolutely true. That's why there are 10 million self-help books and why they keep publishing new ones. Because, you know, maybe the stuff in the self-help book is good for a couple of people, but it, uh, it does not help all. For mm. example, many people I know in this interchange that you and I are having would be terrified. They'd be sweating, literally. Mm. Nothing could make them more anxious. I happen to be a bit of an exhibitionist. <laughs> so this suits me just fine. Mm. Freud once said that behind every fear, there is a wish. That was one of his cardinal ideas. And I always accepted that until I had an actual experience that proved it to me. I have a bit of acrophobia, a fear of heights. Mm -hmm. Not paralyzing, but a bit of it. My mm -hmm. stomach drops if I get up top of a high building or right up to a window in a skyscraper. So a number of years ago, when you could climb the leaning of Tower of Pisa, you can't do it anymore because it's leaning too much, but you could climb it and you climb this circular, this winding staircase up almost to the top. And then you go out on a little, little tiny ledge with no railings to complete the last few circuits. And my acrophobia kicked in. I felt it in my stomach, but you know what else, else I felt? A la Freud, a real wish not to kill myself, but to just go wee and mm. fly off <laughs> oh, interesting. into the sunset like Superman. Right. It, I, it was a palpable wish to do this. You know, that's interesting because I actually have I actually have the same level of uh, of that as you do. Like, I'm not I'm not terrified of heights, but like definitely at times in certain moments, you know, you feel it in your stomach. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was a kid, I tried to go like zip lining and it was like, oh, boy, this is terrifying. But I was still like, still able to do it. But you know what? Like, yeah, part of me also wants to fly off like Superman. I think I think it's possible that that applies to me as well. Um, yeah, it's interesting because like. If, 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 if behind every fear is a wish, was that the phrase? I mean, it's interesting because you think of a fear, it's not as though fear is something you necessarily have to own. You know, it's not, it's not, it's, it, it's, it's still something you kind of vilify or like blame on exterior factors. Whereas a wish mm -hmm. is, is something, you know, you actually have to say, oh, wow, you know, that's something I really want. And it might be weird or whatever. So it can be difficult. 
Um, a very common, very common example of this is, is a little child with obsessional symptoms who is afraid to pick up a knife. Mm. And if you put that child into therapy and the therapy works, they will get to the universal. Now, some people may not believe this is universal, but it's universal. They will get to their the universal wish to murder their parents. That's why they can't pick up a knife. That's why they're terrified of picking up a knife. That doesn't mean that they truly want to mar murder their parents. See, I just had a Freudian slip. I was about to say marry their parents. <laughs> they, they want. No, that's to another one. Yeah. Who? But. I mean, that's, an, that's a pretty simple example of understanding that, that there's a wish behind fears. Mm. It's not always so obvious to figure out, however. I mean, it's, it's probably, it's difficult as well, given that like, I, I don't know if people are really given necessarily the tools to, um, to kind of handle some of these difficult truths, uh, to, to like think about the consequences of of certain relationships you have with other people in the world, like your parents, like your family, or, or close friends, mm -hmm. um, people want to, you know, there's a universal need for kind of safety and control, and sometimes these things can feel very unwieldy and and can really upset that. Um, I wanted to ask you though, while we're on the while we're on the term, while we're on the the, uh, the topic of Freudian slips, I mean, my favorite Freudian slip joke. I want, I'm, I'm curious if it's your favorite as well, which is, uh, quote, a Freudian slip is when you mean to say one thing, but you say a mother. <laughs> I don't know, have you heard that one before? I hear my favorite? I wanna hear your favorite very, very much so. A guy comes into his analyst, lays down on the couch and says, I know how much you love these Freudian slips. Well, I had a doozy the other day. I was at my mother's house for dinner and I meant to say, please pass the salt. And what came out of my mouth instead was, you fucking bitch, you ruined my life. <laughs> I like yours better. Yeah. Okay, thank yeah. You. It's a little, it's, it's got a little more jam to it. Now I know we said we go for half hour. We're a little over that now. I want to be mindful of the time. Are you appearing on Feldman? You said you're appearing on Feldman today. This won't be out for a little while, but people can check you and you usually appear with your son, Ethan on that yeah. show Thursday afternoons, right? Yes. Yeah. It's a great segment. I've, I've, I've really, really enjoyed it for a long time. Um, Glad you did. Yeah. You know, I, I, I attempted to raise my hand for a short period of time. And then I was like, Jesus, I'll just start my own fucking podcast and see if I can get him on. <laughs> Why not? Why, Why not? not? Yeah. And yeah. we love, we, we loved having Ethan on too. I wanted to ask you, I mean, one, um, one film I'm kind of obsessed with one director in general, uh, uh, his name is Koreda. He's a Japanese fellow. He did, most recently, Shoplifters was a big film for him. It won the Palme d'Or a few years back. Um, he did a film I loved from 1999 called Afterlife, which is kind of centered on um, the afterlife. And in the afterlife in this film, there's kind of these lonely uh, bureaucrats in an office building who, as people enter the afterlife, they, they talk to them about their lives. They say to them, okay, we want you to pick one memory from your life, a happy memory or whatever memory you most cherish and we're going to re help you recreate that and then you'll exist in that memory for all of eternity. And one uh, topic of discussion I've brought, I've brought into 
um, or I've brought up on Night Roll before with the audience as well is, is, you know, asking them if you had to pick one of those memories, like what would your memory be? And I, I wonder if yours would be shooting hoops with your son, Ethan, um, for hours on end back in the day, or if, or if you pick another one, don't worry, he's not listening. So you can pick another one if you want. I definitely used to love that. Absolutely. I, I, I take a slight credit for his becoming such a superb basketball player, but, but it was mostly him and mostly his hard work. Um, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll have to think about it. There, okay. there have been many, Good. many such. Good. Yeah. Don't, don't want to put you on the spot. We can, we can table that for another time. Um, okay. Listen, I wanted to, uh, yeah, I want to be mindful of the time. I'm on my, my lunch hour here a little bit. Um, but uh, I mean, maybe just as like a final, <clears throat> a final question. I mean, uh, I've been very focused. On... Sorry. We can sing a song together. You want to sing a song together? What do we yeah. both know one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the final idea. Um, yeah, I'm just curious, like, do you, I mean, this is probably like a little bit of a, a can of worms to open up at the end here, but like looking at, you know, the news, which is something we do touch on in the show a lot. I mean, there's been these like horrible explosions outside of Kabul airport now and things on the ground there are just getting worse and worse. And I think like, it's, it's going to be interesting to see us collectively figuring out what the real um, long-term effects and consequences of this kind of war on terror that went on for 20 years. Yeah. And I think it's now kind of winding down. I mean, do you, do you feel as though we're even like close to being able to understand the, the social and the psychological and the emotional effects of that writ large on, on places like America or the West, or I mean, for that matter, Afghanistan? Whenever I read the newspaper and I come across some pundit, pundit, it could be the most well-respected guy on the planet. And he starts saying, this is what's going to happen. Uh, I, I stop reading that column because nobody knows what's going to happen. It's too complicated. There are too many different scenarios that can play out. Um, my favorite pundit is Franz Kafka, who said, <laughs> who said, never be surprised when something doesn't work out. <laughs> okay. That's a healthy pep pessimism, actually. That sounds, that sounds nihilistic, but that's actually the healthier uh, attitude I, to have, I, I think. I don't think it's nihilistic, but, uh, but, but I think it's realistic. I mean, it sounds that way. I don't think it is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, we need we need Kafka. We need Kafka to come back. I think I think um, things are so Kafka esque. It probably would piss him off to to exist today and and see how Kafka esque things were, and also to see how many people use the term Kafka esque yeah. in conversation, probably like incorrectly a lot of the time. But uh, what a fantastic writer! I mean, I remember reading there was an edition of his stuff I read that was only the stuff that he had published in his lifetime, right. um, which was kind of super definitive. Lot. Yeah, they're not a lot. It was it was yeah. quite easy to get through. Um, well, listen, Dr. Hirschenfeld, I'm really glad we made this happen. Thank you so Let much. Let me give for... you one other name. Please, Bruno, please. Bruno Schultz. Bruno Schultz. I don't know him. Well, not a lot of people do, but he's another writer in that category, in the absurd, 
and uh, um, Philip Roth, when he, he did this whole series of writers from the other Europe. Mm. And Bruno Schultz was one of them, and he published him. And, uh, and by the way, his fate was what, what Kafka's fate would have been if he had not died of tuberculosis. Mm. Bruno Schultz died in a concentration camp. Mm. So, and that absolutely would have had happened to Kafka. Mm. Mm. I got to check him out. I mean, maybe, yeah, he, he's a Polish writer, right? Schultz? Uh, um, Jewish Polish, I think. Yeah, I, 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 I got to check him out. Maybe that can be a basis of a further discussion because I love that that era of writing. It's just so profound. Yeah. At, after you watch Breaking Away. I'm definitely watching Breaking Away. And honestly, I'm, I, yeah, I think... You know, I love I love delving into the cultural stuff more. So um, perhaps if your if your schedule is amenable in the next couple of months, we can we can continue that conversation. I think that would be really fun. Sounds good. Awesome.